Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good afternoon, everyone. It is Saturday, August the 12th, 2023. It is currently 526 p.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live from the Theology Central studio located right here in Abilene, Texas. Well, we keep at it, day in, day out, one day at a time, we keep working on the proper distinction of law and gospel. I am still committed to this series. I still believe it's the most important series I have ever done or will ever do because I believe the the American church at large, I will not speak of churches outside of the United States of America because by no means am I an expert on that, but here in the United States of America, the majority of churches do not teach a proper distinction between law and gospel. They obliterate the proper distinction between law and gospel, which means their so-called gospel is really law masquerading as the gospel. And the reason we continue to do this is because by nature, we tend to be law-based in our thinking. We tend to be more law-minded than gospel-minded. And and so many times Christians, when they hear the gospel, I mean, really hear the gospel, they're going to immediately start accusing, oh, wait, 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 no, no, that's antinomianism. No, that's cheap grace. No, that's easy believism. Or, or, Or if they don't say that, as soon as they start hearing the gospel, they'll say, but... But, 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 but. And you know, the minute you hear but, you just negate everything that just came before it. But, 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 people have to do this and they have to do this and they have to do this. And, and you know, they got to do this. And, and they start wanting to put law, 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 law. They think they want to protect the gospel by placing a hedge of law around it. But when you put the law around the gospel, you are actually corrupting it. See, the law doesn't need to be around it. The law just needs to lead you to it, right? That's what the the gospel is. Here's what Christ has done for you. The law says, this is what you must do. This is what you must stop doing. And there's so, so much theological confusion on this. And it's kind of sad because this was so important during the Protestant Reformation. This whole idea, that uh, the idea that we are justified by an imputed righteousness, not an infused righteousness. I mean, this is like Christianity 101, uh, I, I guess, unless you, if you want to go back to Roman Catholicism. But if you're not Roman Catholic, I, I, I th- in fact, I sometimes joke, I think a lot of non-Catholics in the so-called evangelical Protestant world, they really... They really are Catholic in so many ways, but the only difference is they don't want to submit to a pope. They want to be the pope, all right? So I kind of make that joke. It usually offends people, but there's a little bit of truth to that. Um, Yeah, I think there's a lot lot of truth to that. But we're ready. We're going to continue. Now, if you remember, if you know what we're doing, we're utilizing the radio program Issues ETC because they, as well as us, are working on a series on law and gospel. The Issues ETC radio program is using literally the same book we're using. God's No and God's Yes, the proper distinction between law and gospel by C.F.W. Walther. That's W-A-L-T-H-E-R. They're using the same book. They're talking about the same thing. They're just as concerned about the 
the, the obliteration of the distinction between law and gospel. So we're utilizing them. Remember, we've been working on this series since October of 2022. We've done over probably well over 100 hours now of teaching. We made it so far. And then I thought, you know what? I think I don't think this is working out so well. So in a sense, we've restarted it to offer a refresher a reminder to get us all back on the same page. The book, remember, has 25 theses on the proper distinction between law and gospel. And today, I know you're ready. I know you're excited. We come to thesis number five. Today, we come to thesis number five. And this is such an important one, all right? Thesis number five on the proper distinction between law and gospel. uh, I'm not going to read it directly as it's written. I'm going to do a little paraphrasing. It's a long thesis, uh, thesis, but I think you can, uh, you should be able to get it. I'm going to repeat it maybe a couple of times, and then we're going to start listening to the first section of this episode from Issues ETC. Remember, they are a radio program, so they have commercials before and commercials in the middle of these segments. So we're just taking uh, the, the audio in between commercials, and we're just doing you know one segment per episode for us. But here we go. The first manner of confounding law and gospel is the one most easily recognized. So the first way that people have a way of confounding law and gospel, trying to mix these together, merge them in some way, it's the easiest to recognize. Anyone should be able to recognize the first way in which law and gospel is often confounded. All right. They go on to say it is the grossest. Hey, this is the one mo- most easily to recognize. It's the grossest. It's, 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 it's a horrible one. It's, it's a bad one. It's the one that you definitely want to avoid. They go on to point out that it has been adopted, for instance, by a number of groups. And of course, they include in this group Roman Catholicism, right? So, so it's been, it's been adopted by many groups throughout church history. Okay. And here's what it consists of. All right. Here's what it consists of. Here is the first manner of confounding long gospel. It's the most easily recognized. It's the grossest. And it's been adopted by many groups throughout church history, including the Roman Catholic Church. Here we go. In this first manner of confounding long gospel, it consists of the following. That Christ is represented as a new Moses or a lawgiver, and the gospel turned into a doctrine of meritorious work. Well, at the same time, those who teach that the gospel is the message of the free grace of God and Christ are condemned and anathematized, as is done by the Roman Catholic Church. All right, so let's read this one again. All right. So in this first way of confounding law and gospel, this is very, very important, very important. It represents Christ as a new Moses, a new lawgiver. So they say, hey, we had the we had Moses and we have the new Moses. Christ is the new Moses. He he gives us a a, a law. He gives us a, a new law. And they they say this is very important. And then it turns the gospel into a doctrine of meritorious work. Now, most Christians will say, no, 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 no. Yes, they may even try to make some kind of argument that Christ is a new lawgiver. But, 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 no, no, we don't believe you're saved by meritorious work. We don't save, we don't believe you're saved by what you do. But this is the little game they play. However, 
your work proves that you're saved. Then, of course, if you follow the logic, therefore, you must have the work in order to be saved. So this same way of confounding law and gospel is still present. Just And the modern evangelical church plays a little semantics game, right? Okay, no, no, no. We're not saying you have to do it in order to be saved. We're just saying if you don't do it, then you are never saved. Meaning, therefore, you have to do it. (laughs) And guess what you're looking to? What are you looking to for salvation? What are you looking for to even know that you're saved? Not to the finished work of Jesus Christ, but to somehow your your work is at least meritorious and at this and at, at this level it supposedly proves that you're saved. So your assurance of salvation is not imputed righteousness, it is practical righteousness. The assurance of your salvation is not the imputed righteousness and the finished work of Jesus Christ, but it's the work that you are supposed to be doing and the things you're supposed to be avoiding. So as this one reads, right? It consi- so this one, this this manner of confounding, it consists of saying that Christ is a new Moses, basically a lawgiver. The gospel is turned into a doctrine of meritorious work. Well, at the same time, those who teach that the gospel is the message of the free grace of God and Christ are condemned and anathematized. Now, what happens when you come along and says, "No, no, no, you're saved freely by the grace of God apart from works." What proves your salvation is the finished work of Jesus Christ. And if you give me all of these passages to say, well, if someone is saved, they'll do this and they'll do this and they'll do this and they'll do this. um, I will say that is true in Christ because Christ has done all of those things for me. The minute I say that, I will be anathematized as being an antinomian or cheap grace or easy believism. And they will say I'm teaching a false gospel. So in a roundabout way, they anathematize me for claiming that our salvation is based off the imputed righteousness of Christ, which is what the entire Protestant Reformation was about in the first place. So this is the first manner in which law and gospel is confounded. And you should be able to see it when they start, when you start talking about Christ as really a new Moses, a new lawgiver. And and somehow you start basically saying, you start pointing to works. You know something has gone wrong. Now, we'll see how they explain this one. Uh, th- this one's long. I-, I had to, I skipped some of it. I went ahead and used some of the same words, some of the words I was going to change. Some of the words I completely skipped. They'll read it all directly. But I just want you to grasp the basic idea. If you hear that Christ is the new Moses, that Christ is a lawgiver, and then you basically turn the gospel into a doctrine of meritorious works, And then you start condemning those who really preach the gospel because you canceled the gospel out with, well, works, then you're guilty of this way of confounding law and gospel, or your church is guilty of it. Now, let's see how issues, et cetera, explain this. Here we go. I'm hanging I got to lower the volume down because they're coming in from their commercial break. So it's going to be, it's going to be their theme music really loud. And then we'll slowly increase the volume as they begin to talk. Here we go. What is wrong with just a little bit of rules in the gospel? All Christians use the term gospel. But if you listen carefully, you quickly realize that the definitions vary from Christian to Christian. Some people mean the free and utterly sheer grace of God. For Christ's sake, others mean maybe in a more general sense, just some good news. And others mean, well, it sounds like they mean a set of 
rules that Christians live by. This is so important. Within the evangelical Christian world, everyone uses the word gospel, 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 gospel. They love that word. And that word gets attached to so many ideas. But a lot of times, without even maybe realizing what they're doing, they associate the gospel with rules. They associate the gospel with a moral system. They associate the gospel with works. Any works is related, is connected to the law. And, and those works, because they're connected to the law, then you have to do those works perfectly in order to be in obedience to the law, because the law demands a perfect, exact, entire, perpetual, internal and external obedience, which you're always going to fall short. Saved or unsaved, you're going to fall short. The gospel is the good news. No, it's not your works. It's the finished work of Christ. It's not your righteousness. It's an imputed righteousness. That's accredited to your account. The assurance of your salvation is not what you do. It's what he did. But isn't it kind of frightening that the definition of the definition of the gospel almost changes from person to person? That should bother you. That within the, Christ, the world of Christianity, we don't even really now, now even really know what the gospel is or isn't. Because... Everyone has a gospel that is right in their own eyes. Greetings and welcome to Issues Etc. Live on this Monday afternoon, June the 19th. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. We'll be in part five of our series on the proper distinction between law and gospel with Pastor Will Whedon of the Word of the Lord Endures Forever. Then we'll be looking forward to Sunday morning according to the three-year lectionary, the fourth Sunday after Pentecost with Pastor Sean Denzer, Director of Worship, for the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Pastor Will Whedon is assistant pastor at St. Paul Lutheran Church in Hamill, Illinois, formerly served as director of worship for the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. He's author of the books, Celebrating the Saints, Thank, Praise, Serve, and Obey, and See My Savior's Hands, and he hosts a daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study called The Word of the Lord Endures Forever. Will, welcome back. Hey, thank you, Todd. Good joy. Before we begin this fifth part of our series on the proper distinction between law and gospel, give us your thoughts on last weekend's Issues, et cetera, making the case conference. Oh, man. What a blast. First of all, you know, <laughs> Todd, if, if you ever get to the point where you're like me and you don't have really good hearing anymore, you really need to swallow the pride and put those wretched hearing aids into your ears and then go to the conference because this is the first Issues, et cetera, conference, making the case conference that I've actually heard everything. <laughs> it was like, whoa. And, and it was really beautiful. It was great to hear all the different presentations. I mean, I think every single one of them was simply stellar. They gave hard-hitting, heavy content. There was a lot to digest, a lot to take in. And yet I have to confess, despite the great presentations, my favorite part really is the hymn sing. And I just love how that room, I mean, it was like a wall of sound when you're up front. And the sound is just coming right at you from Oregon, from all those people. It's an astonishing thing. And it was just wonderful. We had two Roman Catholic visitors at the conference. I don't know if you were aware of that. They said, we're Catholics from Chicago and we love this conference. Whoa, the singing. <laughs> it was great to hear. It's like, yup, we're Lutherans. We, we really like to sing. Boy, was that evident there in that room. 
and, uh, you know, with all the opportunities to worship, to fellowship, to talk with people and uh, hear different stories of where people have come from. I can't even count the number of people who to talk to me about how they had come from outside of Lutheranism, some of them outside Christianity, discovering the confessional Lutheran church. Some of them had been by a circuitous route. Some people had been Lutheran to begin with and then wandered off into basic evangelicalism. And then they were so thankful when they came back in. They had sort of been, can I put this way? They were like generically Lutheran in their youth. And then they found confessional Lutheranism. They found the sacraments. They found the great joy that we have in the gospel of Christ, in the liturgy. And that's why they were there. And wow, it was wonderful to to meet them all and, and hear those stories. Now, for anyone who haven't have not been with us, we're obviously reviewing the audio from Issues ETC. And if you're not aware, it's a Lutheran radio program, and they obviously had a big conference. Obviously, it's a part of the Confessional Lutheran Church. Uh, most of it's from Missouri Synod. Um, there's other more confessional. There's a, another synod that's pretty conservative and strong. If it's the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America, I would not refer that to. I wouldn't even refer to it as Lutheran or confessional. I don't know if I would refer to some of that as even Christian. But the evangelical the Evangelical Lutheran Church is a mess. The Missouri Synod. I was Missouri Synod, and I w- wanted to become a. a, a Lutheran pastor within the Missouri Synod, uh, but then I left Lutheranism because of baptism. And I'm not sacramental. I don't believe in the sacraments. I believe in the ordinances. So I obviously reject it. Um, But one thing that Lutheranism still maintains that I think we can all learn from is the proper distinction between law and gospel. Now, I will argue in some ways they violate the proper distinction between law and gospel themselves, or at least the way I was taught, right? Because I came, I became a Christian in a Southern Baptist church, had a million theological issue, uh, questions, a million uh, questions about church history, and I got nothing. Uh, the Southern Baptist church I went to, it was all about fun, food, and activity. I was a teenager. They thought what I wanted was pizza parties, lock-ins, capture the flag, and I wanted doctrine, theology, and Bible teaching. And so I left it, ended up in a Missouri Synod Lutheran church, and that, that pastor, even though I was a teenager— he treated me like, you know, I had a brain and he's handing me the Augsburg Confession. He's handing me the Book of Concord. He's handing me, you know, the Catechism. He's, you know, we're talking doctrine, church history, theology. And then I'm like, whoa, Lutheranism is the most amazing thing. But then I start, my questions did not stop. So I'm like, wait a minute, okay, make sure I get this right. We take a little baby, we sprinkle it. Boom, magic Christian. Sins are washed away. They're born again. And then you hold the baby up and say, welcome everyone, your new brother or sister in the Lord. And I'm like, and everybody's like, yeah, amen. Okay, so a new Christian. But then I was teaching the Lutheran teenagers and I kind of was like, I, I, I think something's wrong. I think the water is is broken or something's wrong because these kids don't care about God. They don't care about Jesus. They don't care about, they don't even want to be here. So, and, and so then basically I was told, Hey, even though God supposedly saved them through the sacrament of baptism, well, they can lose it. And I'm like, wait a minute. How do they, they lose it by what they do? Then it's not by grace. And so then to me, it's a complete contradiction between law and gospel, because if you believe the baptism saves, and then that's a beautiful picture 
of the gospel because the baby is helpless. The baby can't do anything for itself, right? And so that baptism is not a work that they do. It's a work that God does through the word and the water. And so if you believe it's a sacrament, it's all a work of God and the baby's not doing anything. It's a passive recipient of the, of the glory, the grace that is contained within the gospel. Then guess what? You can't turn around and lose it or guess what? It's not. Then you're merging law and gospel. So you're violating this very concept. Now, I, I still stand by that. I still stand by that. Now, some Lutherans will say, well, no, 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 you don't lose it. Well, if you don't lose it, then the babies who are baptized, who, who grow up and become an atheist, <laughs> then you got to believe they're still saved, even though they've rejected any belief in God. You've got you've to figure this out in some way, shape, or form, because either that's an actual divine work of God that saves the baby, or it's not. I will argue it's nothing more than a religious ceremony in which you drop some water on the forehead of a baby, typically may make the baby, startle the baby and may, or may make it cry. Everyone looks at it and everybody's like, ooh, it's a new, ba- it's a new Christian. And then time demonstrates that they, they don't even have faith in Jesus Christ. They don't even know who Christ is. They can't even answer basic questions. So I will argue that they end up violating the very concept within Lutheranism. That's why I couldn't stay a Lutheran is because the whole thing just made no sense to me. It just fell apart. And it wasn't even an argument about trying to prove, well, well, you know, baptizing babies is more historical. What are all the arguments they would try to make? I would just like, it violates your very concept of the gospel itself. The gospel is what God does for you. Well, if, what's, if the gospel is what God does for you, then how do you turn around and lose it if it's what God does for you? It makes no sense. But at the same time, baptism is not doing what you're telling me it's doing because look at all the teenagers in the Lutheran church. Look, they literally don't care. They, they have no, I mean, they, they, they will even many of them tell you, I don't believe any of this. Well, okay, well then obviously then what happened? What happened? So that's why I could not stay a Lutheran. If it was up to me, I would have stayed a Lutheran. I love the liturgy. I did not like the little 15, 20-minute sermons. That I thought was an abomination. I didn't like the fact that we only had church on Sunday morning and nothing Sunday night or Wednesday. I didn't understand that. So there was a lot of issues I would have had, but there was a lot of things I did. And I love the proper distinction between law and gospel, but I don't think uh, the proper distinction between law and gospel is necessarily Lutheran. I think the idea is, well, just it just... It's in the Bible, and without it, you don't understand the Bible correctly. Uh, so I'm glad that he had a great time at the Lutheran conference, but yeah, that's uh, that's why I'm not. But let's continue. Up to this point in our series, we have been doing a little bit of introduction. Walther, in his theses on the proper distinction between law and gospel in theses one through four, has been making the distinction, explaining why it's so important, explaining how it is not just an interpretive key to Scripture, but the interpretive key to Scripture. And now, with Thesis 5, he's going to start a long list. I think it turns out to be 21 ways that law and gospel can be confounded, mixed, confused. Mm -hmm. What do we need to know in what we've said before to go into this first way, the most obvious way? that law and gospel are confused. Well, we just need to remember everything that we've learned so far about God in the gospel is giving and God in the law is demanding. 
And you can't mix that up together without ruining both ends. And you'll end up with what amounts to law. The law ends up wiping out the joy of the gospel. So if we remember that, it's important to recognize that this is the first thesis, like you said, where he's actually going to say this is the first manner of confounding law and gospel. Like you say, he'll just run on through a whole bunch of others. But this he, he seems to think as as the first, I think it's first because it was the one out of which the Reformation was born. You want to read that one? Yeah, he says in Thesis 5, the most common way people mingle law and gospel, and one that is also the easiest to detect because it's so crude, is prevalent among papists, Socinians, and rationalists. You have to explain some of that. These people turn Christ into a kind of new Moses or lawgiver. This transforms the gospel into a doctrine of meritorious works. Therefore, some people, like the papists, condemn and anathematize those who teach that the gospel is the message of the free grace of God in Christ. What would you say? Yeah. Okay, let's first of all just define terms. First of all, there's that term papist. And actually later in this thesis, he's going to make clear he's not speaking generally about Roman Catholics when he uses that term. Okay, that's interesting. When he uses the term papist, he's not necessarily referring to Roman Catholicism. I almost always substitute Roman Catholic for papist. I typically do that. So I probably, to be more in line with Walther, needs to correct that. But you'll notice I do that constantly when I'm looking, when I, if you're following along, when I read God's no and God's yes, I will, wherever the word papist is, I almost always substitute Catholic Church, Catholicism. Now, we'll have to see how Walther uses it, and maybe I need to correct that. So you may want to note that distinction, and when, 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 pa- when Walther uses the word papist, what, what, how does he mean it? And you can understand, I typically reference it as Roman Catholicism, because I do believe, at least in this thesis, this is where the whole Protestant Reformation comes from, and that was obviously an issue with the Roman Catholic Church. But let's see what Walther does here. He will very specifically say, I am not speaking of the Roman Catholic, but of the papistic church, the church which submits to the Pope, accepts his decrees, and repeats his anathemas. In other words, it's these uh, hyper-Roman Catholics, if you will, that are into this recognition of every one of these councils, and the Council of Trent's anathemas. We're going to get through them as we work through the thesis today. The people Okay, now I, that that definition to me it makes absolutely no sense. I'm not referring to Roman Catholic. I'm referring to anyone who submits to the dogmas of the Catholic Church, to submits to the Council, submits to the anathema. Well, what other churches is out there submitting to the Pope, but yet not Catholic? I, I, I maybe in this historical setting there was a case. Hey, we are not going to be Catholic, but we're going to submit to everything the Pope says. Well, if you're submitting to everything the Pope said, I that makes no sense. I'm not referring to the Roman Catholic Church. I'm referring to anyone who submits to the Pope. (laughs) No, that sounds like Catholics. I agree. That's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. Hey, Walther, when he says Papist, he doesn't mean Catholics. He just means everyone who submits to the Pope, the councils, and the decrees, and the dogmas, and the anathemas 
of the Roman Catholic Church. Well, you're not going to be submitting to that unless you're Roman Catholic. That's that makes literally no sense. That makes no sense in my mind. None. Okay. That's that's almost humorous to me. All right. But we'll continue. We'll continue. We'll lay that aside. I don't have I would have to talk to to CFW Walther. I'd have to go back in time and say, um, could you help me out here? Could could you help me out here? People who say that a lot of times you're dealing with Roman Catholics. You, you say, hey, well, what about this? And you, you teach that to them and they would go, oh, I'm not sure I believe that. And what's really ironic on that is if you go to the, the, the previous pope, Pope Benedict the Sixteenth, let me just read you a little something from Pope Benedict. I think that if Luther had heard this, he would have been saying, man, you can't be the pope and going around saying things like that. That's going to get you fired or something. Listen, he says, and to the Christians of Rome, he, that is St. Paul, asserts that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and that they are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And he adds, we hold that a man is justified by faith apart from the law. At this point, Luther translated justified by faith alone. He says, I'm going to return to this point a little later. And when he gets back to that point, he says, the wall, as he says in his letter to the Ephesians, between Israel and the Gentiles was no longer necessary. It is Christ who protects us from polytheism and all of its deviations. It is Christ who unites us with and in one true God. It is Christ who guarantees our true identity within the diversity of cultures. The wall is no longer necessary. Our common identity within the diversity of cultures is Christ, and it's he who makes us just. Being just simply means being with Christ and in Christ, and this suffices Further observances are no longer necessary. And then these are the big words. For this reason, Luther's phrase, faith alone is true, if it is not opposed to charity and love. That is, faith is looking at Christ, entrusting oneself to Christ, being united to Christ, conformed to Christ in his life. And the form the life of Christ has is love. Anyway, I think that if CFW Walther had heard that, he would have had a different take on what he writes here about the papacy. Okay, now, okay, I, oh man, okay, I don't know, okay, this this whole thing is a mess now. All right, this is a little frustrating because they've done such a good job up to this point, and all this does is just throw massive confusion. So you're telling me the word papas, the, the, the you know, papacy, the pap, the pa- papist, the the papist, however you want to say the word, that it's that it's only referencing those who submit to the rules of the Pope. But Pope Benedict did not sound like a papist. I like what do you? Pope Benedict the Sixteenth, like that is just ridiculous. You're taking one quote from Pope Benedict the Sixteenth. Let's go read everything. I think I have most of the books that he's written. Um, I I I told everyone to read uh, the works of, of Pope Benedict the Sixteenth because I thought there was a lot of good things he said. But to say in any way, shape, or form that he was promoting the proper distinction between law and gospel and teaching a true understanding of the gospel would be the most ludicrous and ridiculous thing. I mean. 
before he became the Pope, I mean, as a cardinal, he was basically responsible for doctrine and theology within the Roman Catholic Church. I mean, go back, read when he was, uh, back when he was a cardinal, read the books when he was a, a, a cardinal. That's just, that's just not an accurate an accurate, I, that's just so not fair to do. It's not even fair to do that to Pope Benedict the Sixteenth. It's not fair. And it just confuses people. Oh, look, because so many times in Roman Catholicism, there'll be a quote and you're like, oh, that sounds like us. They, they, they sound like they believe like us. You have to, you have to take everything into consideration. You're telling me Pope Benedict XVI believe in, believed in a justification by imputed righteousness and not infused? That's ridiculous. Are you telling me he didn't believe in purgatory? That's ridiculous. Are you telling me he didn't believe in the distinction between mortal and venial sin and that mortal sin destroys the grace of God and you're no longer in a state of grace? That would be ridiculous. <laughs> okay. I don't even know what this is. The term papist, the term found in the writings of Walther. Walther may not have wanted to just relate it to Roman Catholic Church, but for anyone else, I would tell you, for your own sake, where you do not get confused, just reduce the term to the Roman Catholic Church, the end, or to any, well, I mean, it's still going to be the Roman Catholic Church, because if you try to separate it from anyone who's not Catholic, who's going to be running around submitting to all of the teaching of the Catholic Church, but not be Catholic? That makes no sense, no sense. The the word papist refers to the Roman Catholic Church. C.F.W. Walther may have been trying to make some distinction, and he just tried to make some distinction, like, well, see, Pope Benedict, are you saying Pope Benedict the Sixteenth then would not be classified as a papist? I mean, that's that's ludicrous. That, oh man, that's just that's crazy, 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 crazy. I I I I'm having a hard time even processing that. All right, let's continue. Two, but he was dealing with the papacy that was actually very vociferous in saying, well. I don't want to stir the pot with Rome, but I mean, what Benedict was willing to give on this is something that his predecessors most certainly were not willing to yield at all. So papists, as Walther uses the term, is clearly meant to be those people who are upholding the condemnations of the Council of Trent against the gospel as confessed by the Lutherans. We'll get to that in a minute. So Sinians, they were kind of like... The big teddy bear god people where, where any kind of mention of wrath is, is to be understood as anthropomorphic and you, you have to understand that, that God really does love everyone and the atonement of Christ really is not about expiating wrath at all. It doesn't have that propitiatory character. Rationalist, of course, the people who are just willing to sell out of the Scripture anything that contradicts the common experience of man in his day-to-day life, and especially as he thinks about things. Anything that uh, seems unreasonable to him, it can go. Those were the rationalists. And his point is that all of these people end up representing Jesus as a brand-new Moses, as a lawgiver. A man who goes around giving you new and actually harder laws to obey than you had in Moses. Luther himself thought this way early on in his life. Do you remember? He he said, oh, that in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. He thought of that as the most awful statement in Romans ever because the law was that was bad enough. But now Jesus demands even more than the law such as you see in uh, the Sermon on the Mount. So he was hearing the righteousness of God as something that you have to come up with to 
be righteous before God, your own work. And Luther says, anytime you add any of that into the gospel, even the littlest bit in, what you've done is trashed the gospel. Pastor Will Whedon is our guest. It's part five of our series on the proper distinction between law and gospel. Pastor Whedon hosts the daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study produced by Lutheran Public Radio called The Word of the Lord Endures Forever. That was one of the worst segments that they have ever done on Issues ETC. First, they wasted time talking about the conference, but that's okay. I waste time on my podcast all the time. So I can't criticize someone wasting time. The only difference with me, if I waste 15 minutes, I'm not going to be cut off by a commercial break. I don't have a set time. So I can go just, I can go an hour 30. So that to me was a waste. Then I don't know what that whole, hey, papist doesn't really mean Catholic. It, I mean, it may not even reference Pope Benedict the 16th. Oh man, what, what a mess. And then he just gets into it. Hey, Christ, if, if we see Christ as a lawgiver, well, then we're all in trouble. Now, I, Christ clearly articulated and expounded the law and helped us understand it, but he did so in order for us to be condemned so that we would come to him for salvation. But that's, that's the end of that segment. That was an absolute train wreck. That was the worst segment they have ever done, which makes this the worst episode I have ever done. So thank you guys. Thank you so very much. I know what you're saying. You should have known that. No, because when we review audio, I don't listen to it first because I don't like it to come across as rehearsed. I like it to be app happening in real time. But that is a disaster of epic proportion. I don't even know what the whole argument was. Hey, papists, that's not really Catholics. That's just anyone who happens to submit to the all the teachings of the Roman Catholic Church. But you see, Pope Benedict, he didn't really submit to... That is just... I don't know. Pope Benedict XVI, yes, there was major controversy about some of the things he said. There's news articles out there about it. But at the end of the day... He didn't change the catechism of the Roman Catholic Church. He didn't teach the same basic teaching of the infused versus imputed. Uh, you can mortal sin. You're no longer in a state of grace, purgatory, all the basic things that are, it's still right there in the Roman Catholic Church. Sometimes, sometimes non-Catholics to me, they always get confused, right? Because when a pope says something, if it's Pope Francis, Pope Benedict, Pope John Paul, it doesn't matter whom. And it sounds crazy. Everybody's like, oh, 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 look what the Pope said. It's unless he makes a declarative statement changing the teaching doctrine of the church, right? It, it's, it can just, he said something. It doesn't have no necessarily any profound impact on the actual teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. Until the catechism is amended, until the catechism is changed. Until the official dogmas and doctrines of the Roman Catholic Church are changed, you you can get all caught up in all of that and, I guess, you know, get a, a couple of extra likes on social media or get some extra downloads to your podcast. But it doesn't really mean anything until there's a, an official step to teach the actual fundamental doctrines and dogmas of the Roman Catholic Church. Those are fixed until there's something declarative that would happen to change it or to amend it. So I don't know why he would try to remove Pope Benedict from the papists. I, that's just, I don't even understand what, what how did, how does that even help anyone understand that thesis? I don't understand that entire segment 
was a disaster of epic proportions. Now, hey, I'm not trying to be judgmental because, you know, I can, you know, I can look at the last couple of broadcasts I've done and I I thought they were train wrecks of epic proportions. I didn't think they were any good. So I have my own train wrecks. I have my own failures in broadcasting. Sometimes things just don't go right. I just, I don't know, you know, sometimes it's one of those things where, oh, I know what Walther does here. So I want to explain it to everyone, but then you don't stop to think. Like so many times I'll, I'll say something or do something. And then when it's over, I'll be like, well, I don't think that actually helped. I thought, I thought it was, I was clever here, but it really didn't. But looking back at that, that segment is just, a, oh, that was a, uh, that was frustrating, but that's okay. That gets us closer to moving forward. That gets us closer. So the next time we'll, we'll review the audio for the second segment and hopefully they'll actually get into the thesis. So I'm going to read the thesis again so you can start thinking about it and meditating. I know I've already read it a couple of times. They've read it. So you've at least get the thesis down and you can think a little bit about it. Here we go. All right. Here we go. The first manner of confounding law and gospel is the most, is the one most easily recognized and it is the grossest. Their translation said it's the crudest, okay? So mine says it's the grossest, all right? It is adopted, for instance, by many different groups. The papists are one, all right? Uh, Sosisnians and rationalists, all right? And they're going to, I'm assuming, go through these uh, groups later, so I won't go through all of them, all right? Uh, And consist in this, that Christ is represented as a new Moses or lawgiver, so the fact that if you represent Christ as a lawgiver, there's there's a problem here, okay? And the gospel is turned into a doctrine of meritorious works. Well, at the same time, those who teach that the gospel is the message of free grace of God and Christ are condemned and anathematized, as is done by the papists. And again, right there, the, the, this has to be, you would have to understand those condemned and anathematized as done by the papists, as referring to the Roman Catholic Church, because the ver- the book starts off with the decrees of the Council of Trent speak of the gospel as containing the doctrine of salvation. However, they immediately, and then they start talking about the Council of Trent, which offered the anathemas to the entire Reformation. So, I, I, I don't know. Yeah, I, that, that one was very, that one was very frustrating. Right, so the main thing that you need to think about is this: Do we, as as Christians, does the church, at times, seem to present Christ as a lawgiver? At what ways do we add meritorious works to the gospel? And in what ways are those who teach Salvation is a free of the, uh, is obtained through the free grace of God, not completely apart from works. There's no works involved. It's all based off an imputed righteousness. How are they condemned and anathematized? That's how this would be practical to us. Of course, the Roman Catholic Church did all of this. They, they are guilty of all of this, but it's, it's also very much present in the evangelical world. So there you have it. I, yeah. Oh, that's 
man, I can't. I was not prepared. I mean, every every segment they've done has been so good. I don't know what to say here. I don't know what to say. Um, but we're, we'll stop because that's that's the promise I made is we'll just look at one segment at a time, whether good or bad. That's what we did. But at least so we'll just I guess I'm trying to find some way to save this entire 42 minute, 43 minutes is just try to think about that thesis. Just think about that thesis, try to process it and then. And the next segment, the next time we get together for an episode in this series, we'll try to look at that and see if, uh, yeah, if we can do something positive with it because uh, that was a mess. Hopefully they do something positive with it. All right. You can email me, newsif at yahoo.com. That's newsif at yahoo.com. Newsif at yahoo.com. All right. Yeah, I'm just I'm looking at the uh, the pages and see I'm I'm kicking myself that they didn't even get into it. But if you go back in our series, we covered thesis number five. We covered it. We covered it in great detail. So there we go. I don't know what else to say. Newsif at yahoo.com. Newsif at yahoo.com. Thanks. I apologize for that, but I, I don't know what else to say. That I, I'm kind of just dumbfounded at that entire segment, the way they structured it. I'm just dumbfounded. I don't. I don't know. That's the most bizarre thing I've ever heard. Hey, Pope Benedict XVI. Don't call him a papist. Don't don't call him. He doesn't fit in. He doesn't fit in. What are you talking about? That is the most. I, I almost have to laugh. I'm just. I'm just. I'm just going to sit here for a few minutes uh, dumbfounded. Maybe I'll figure out something else to do and we'll be back on the air. Hopefully, maybe I've got to do something else now. I've got to. Now I got to. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. Thanks for listening. <laughs> I, I almost want to delete this episode, but I'm going to leave it because the one thing I do love is the good, the bad and the ugly. When it's all there, then then everyone can see how a series like if you if you listen to the entire series you can hear the good and you can hear the bad you can hear the ugly and you at least see all the twists and turns our studies take and this is a massive twist here that i don't know what they did but it's what we got so to delete this then we would not have an accurate history of exactly how we handled everything in this series it would be it would be a misrepresentation of what exactly occurred so i'm going to leave it even though that pains me <laughs> to say, but what was that? I don't know. All right. Newsif at yahoo.com. Everyone have a great day. I'll be back on the air shortly. God bless.